Go ahead and keep your Bible out. And I hope you got a copy of the Followers 5 on your way in. If you open it up, you'll see the sermon notes for today are right there, and maybe you'll want to follow along and fill in the blanks. I'm the type of person that if I have something blank, i got to fill it in or else it bothers me. Listen, I don't know, are any of y'all world travelers? Okay, that makes all, all none of us are world travelers. So very good. Well, I've heard it said that if you are a world traveler, and you go to one of the great cities of Europe or even South America, you need to stay on your toes. There's lots of challenging barriers you've got to get over. You've got to figure out how to get around these cities, reading road signs maybe that aren't in your native language. You've got to overcome all kind of cultural barriers. Maybe you get a plate set in front of you with food that you're not used to. And of course, you've got to watch out for pickpockets. Apparently, the, that's one of the main hazards of international travel. Um, Forget the uh, travel website. TripAdvisor. TripAdvisor has the top 10 list of the world's worst cities for pickpockets. I haven't thought much about this, okay? Prague, Paris, Barcelona, Rome, Buenos Aires. If you go there, watch out. They're pickpockets. They're going to bump into you, slip a hand into your coat, and snatch out your wallet. You're going to cause commotion here and there and try to make off with your luggage. You've got to watch out. Otherwise, you're going to be stranded trying to figure out where all your valuables went off to. Now, these pickpockets operate on misdirection and distraction. So they do all sorts of things. Of course, they bump into you and snatch your stuff. They use children playing and causing a ruckus to get you looking over here while they take your stuff over there. I read they even put signs up that say, beware of pickpockets, to try to distract you and get your attention off of them while they grab your luggage and walk away. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to think of myself as a challenging mark. Okay? I'm not the type of person who's going to be duped by one of these common criminals. I keep my wits about me. My head's on a swivel. I always know what's going on in my surroundings. And yet, I'm, if I'm honest, when I was in New York last month, I did a lot of this. Okay, wow, and I had my phone out, and I was taking pictures of stuff. I would have been the perfect candidate for getting his valuables snatched. And what's worse than that is that in life, there are things we can be robbed of that are more important than our wallets or our return tickets home. In fact, I think there's nothing more than Satan would like to do than to get us all good and distracted so that we lose sight of the mission Jesus has given us as his people. You see, there are lots of things going on in the world around us, and they get our attention, don't they? I don't know, the, the news getting your attention, we're what, six weeks away from a, a midterm election. Seems like that's all anybody can talk about. People talking about economic data and how to read through the tea leaves of stock markets and interest rates, you know? Lots of stuff going on. And Satan would love for you to pay attention to all that stuff so he can sneak in and take what's most important. This morning, I want to talk to you about the hidden threats to the kingdom. And by that, I mean the main threats to the church's kingdom work don't come from outside of us, but they're right here within. I think this passage gives us three threats that we need to be looking for, and 
it begins by alerting us to something that isn't quite as big of an issue as you may think. We have been working our way through Mark's gospel for quite a while. We're almost to Mark chapter 10, and I've mapped it out. We are going to finish Mark's gospel next July. So it's coming, okay? (laughs) It's coming. But we're in this stage of Jesus' ministry where he's made a major shift. Before, he's been focused on ministry to the crowds, performing miracles and teaching publicly, announcing the coming of God's kingdom, and doing the sorts of things that backed it up and gave people reason to believe the words he said. But back in Mark chapter 8, his attention has shifted. He knows that he's headed to Jerusalem, where he's going to be betrayed and handed over to the Jewish ruling authorities, and he's going to be killed. And so he's really focused on preparing his disciples for this key phase of his ministry. And to do that, he has to re-educate them and recalibrate them to the values of the kingdom of God. See, along the way in life, they had picked up all sorts of things that had caused them to think of the world in a very specific way. And it just so happens that that way was contrary to the way of Christ. And so in our passage last week, we saw Jesus respond to this debate they were having among themselves about who was the greatest. They had to get set straight that God looks at people differently than we do. And true greatness is not about what you can do, but it's how well you can serve. And then today... The re-education comes in response to John's proud declaration that the disciples had gotten together and had tried to prevent some unnamed exorcist from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. John uh, Raymond read it for us here just a second ago. Let's read it again here in uh, Mark 9, verse 38. Mark tells us that John said to him, Teacher... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Now, apparently, this man, this unnamed exorcist, was casting out demons using Jesus' authority. He was saying stuff like, hey, in the name of Jesus, I command you, demon, come out of this person. And he was having some sort of success. Given what we know about demon possession and casting demons out, and we just learned it a couple weeks ago, that requires a great deal of faith, confidence in Jesus' ability to prove powerful over demons. And so apparently this man had heard the things Jesus was saying and had observed his miracles and had come to a personal belief that Jesus was capable of doing that, that he was capable of casting out demons. But he hadn't gone as far as the 12 disciples. Whereas the 12 disciples had left everything behind to follow Jesus on his itinerant ministry, this man had stayed stagnant or rooted in his place of Capernaum. So the disciples are these chosen representatives getting the direct teaching of Jesus, this personal one-on-one. And this man is left behind in Capernaum. And after Jesus travels around northern Galilee doing his ministry, he makes it back to Capernaum, and the disciples see this guy casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they decide the best course of action for them is to tell him to stop. you got to wonder what is going through their heads. What motivated them to stand in the way of a man successfully casting out demons? And there's a great irony in it. I mean, not just a few days before, the disciples had proved powerless to cast out a demon themselves. They didn't have the faith. They didn't pray. They were just relying on their own methods. But here's a man 
who's doing the very thing they struggle to do. It's crazy. I've thought about it all week and tried to wrap my mind around it. What motivated these disciples to tell this guy to stop? On the one hand, I want to be as charitable as I can and give, and, and give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe they saw this guy using Jesus' name in an unauthorized manner, and they were concerned that maybe this guy preaching and casting out demons in Jesus' name was going to give the public the perception that he was an official spokesperson for Jesus. Now, here he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and so anything this man said must have been as if Jesus himself had said it. Because of that, maybe the disciples were worried that this guy could end up leading people astray and cast aspersion on Jesus' ministry. That's a charitable reading of it. But we know enough about the disciples to know maybe there's another motivation going on. Maybe they're trying to get this guy to stop for another reason. And maybe it's not the public perception of Jesus, but do you think maybe it's the public perception of the disciples themselves? I mean, these are Jesus' guys. They are the hands selected from among the crowds. Mark tells us back in Mark chapter 4 that they were chosen by Jesus to be with him and to have authority to preach and to cast out demons. They had this very narrow view of how God was going to work in the world, that it was going to be those 12 men and nobody else. And this unnamed exorcist, using Jesus' name, was sort of virgin in on their turf, giving people the wrong impression that just old anybody can go out and preach about Jesus. Now, you've got to be one of the 12, one of the hand-selected apostles. Now, their role as exclusive spokespeople for Jesus was at risk. And so they have to get this guy to shut up. Now, I think that's probably more likely. In fact, I think they're a lot like Joshua. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn to Numbers chapter 11, why don't you do that? There's this really interesting scene when Moses is leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, and the job is getting pretty tough. The people of Israel are incredibly numerous, and they're bringing to Moses all their problems and so uh, his father-in-law tells him, hey, look, this is unsustainable. You cannot continue to lead on your own. And so God instructs Moses to choose from among the people of Israel 70 elders that God is going to appoint to share the load with Moses. And so Moses does it. He goes to the camp and he selects 70 men. And uh, let me just read it to you. This is Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. Since so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent of meeting. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but they had not gone out to the temp, tent, and they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders 
of Israel. Now, I can't be for certain what motivated Joshua and John's concern that somebody somewhere was doing something in Jesus' name who wasn't supposed to. But I can tell you with an absolute degree of certainty that whatever motivated them, they soon found out they were clueless as to what God was really up to. Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? And Jesus says, don't stop him. You've got to think there's some humor in this. John comes to him so proud. Lord, we heard about this guy who was casting out demons in your name, but don't worry. No problem here. We told him to stop. And Jesus is saying, you told him to stop. Don't stop him. Why would you do such a thing? He says that in verse 39. Don't hinder him. And then he gives three reasons. For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I like to think what he's saying here is, don't stop him. This guy is not a threat. And Jesus had opponents. He had people, the scribes and the Pharisees were one. They saw Jesus casting out demons, and they said that he was possessed by Beelzebul. But this guy ain't one of them. This guy's not a threat. He's preaching in the name of Jesus, casting out demons. He's not going to go home and say, oh, Jesus is a liar. He's just publicly demonstrated Jesus' power. His own reputation is on the line. He's staked all that he is on Jesus. He's not a threat, disciples' ministry. And more than that, Jesus says, he's on your side. He says in verse 40, he who is not against us is for us. His ministry is absolutely consistent with what Jesus himself was doing and what he'd sent his disciples out to do. That he was doing exactly what God was up to in the world. He was involving himself in God's activity. And last but not least, Jesus said, he's going to be rewarded. Don't stop him. People like this guy. People who cast out demons and even people who give a cup of water to one of my disciples are in for a reward. I like to think maybe what Jesus is saying is, you think you've found an instance where someone's doing something they shouldn't, suppose, they shouldn't be doing, but hey, God sees this person. God knows what this man's up to, and I can assure you that he's got a reward stored up for him. So don't stop him. He's not a threat. He's on your side, and he's going to be rewarded. I mean, Jesus' response to John's proud announcements, we tried to stop him, was to challenge the disciples' narrow an exclusivistic view about God's activity in the world. They were not so special. They were not the hand-selected and hand-chosen only through whom God could work. In fact, this is where that point I already mentioned to you comes from. That other followers aren't our adversaries. They're our allies. And I think what was true for them then is as much true for us today. I mean, we, we need to hear this word. I mean, I know it's easy to see the signs out in front of our churches. First United Methodist Church, Central Baptist Church, First Presbyterian Church, Episcopal Church of the Annunciation, Maranatha, Family Worship Center. We see these different names, and we immediately go to the differences we have with each other. And we have significant differences with Christians around the world. We have different theologies. We understand the Bible differently. Those differences are real and yet, it would seem to be that, from this story at least, we should be willing to celebrate God's activity 
in the world, wherever it is. Wherever Jesus is being preached, we need to learn to rejoice. And we have adversaries. We have Satan, who is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And he's got churches in his crosshair, and he's got individual Christians in his crosshairs. And then we have the wicked in the world who are blinded by Satan and so do whatever he wants, opposing the work of God in the world. They are they're our adversaries. Okay? They're God's enemies. They're our enemies. And yet, other Christians bear so much in common with us. And they're not a threat to what God's doing here. I've been a little personally convicted about this this week. I read about a Southern Baptist pastor who in 1948 got up on the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting stage and said, I believe now more than ever that the last great hope for world evangelization comes through this people called the Southern Baptists. And I don't know if y'all know this, but if the last hope for world evangelism rests on Southern Baptists, the world is doomed. Okay? The world is doomed. I'm glad to be a Southern Baptist, but hey, we got issues. I mean, we're really so close-minded, narrow-minded to think that God can only work through the SBC or, God forbid, through CBC? No. Wherever God is at work in the world, we need to celebrate. Other Christians aren't our adversaries. They're our allies. They're not competitors. A person here doesn't mean one less there. And we're not in a race to see whose church is biggest or best. We're co-laborers. We're in this thing together. And so I think we do well to remember Jesus' little pithy saying here in verse 40. Whoever's not against us is for us. And maybe even we ought to learn what the Apostle Paul knew in Philippians 1 when he was sitting in a prison cell and writing his good friends in Philippi about what God was doing all around him. He said, hey, I want you to know, guys, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonments, the cause so that in my imprisonment the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everybody else, and that most of the brothers trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some are doing it from goodwill, and the latter are doing it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That is the call to us today. And other followers of Jesus, other churches, are not our adversaries, they're our allies. And wherever the name of Jesus is proclaimed, we should celebrate it. But this story reminds us that that's not always going to be easy. It's going to require a great deal of humility. And there's nothing that Satan would like us to do more than to be distracted by all the people out there rather than taking a good hard look at all the threats there are to our mission in here. And so let's keep looking as Jesus shows us that, no, this guy's not a threat to what I'm doing through you. Here are three threats you really need to take seriously. The first is those who lead other Christians into sin. 
That's the real threat to the kingdom work God's called us to do. He says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for him if with a heavy millstone was hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. And he just says one of these little ones, and last week we saw how they're in this house in Capernaum, and Jesus grabbed a little kid and stood him up in the middle. And so uh, we need to remember that there's this little, child, this little child here, and when he says one of these little ones, we're tempted to think maybe he's just talking about this kid, but really, in fact, he's using little children as a stand-in for any disciple. Talk about any person who follows Jesus. And he says, the person who leads one of these little ones astray is in danger. Maybe your Bible says it like mine. It says, one of these little ones, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Raymond's Bible said to sin. And the reason there's a difference there is there's a Greek word called scandalo, or scandalizo, which is from where we get our English word scandalize. But it means to cause somebody to stumble or to be a stumbling block, something you stub your toe under. And it's used throughout the New Testament to talk about the way people can cause those others to fall into sin, specifically by breaking God's law or to adopt different kinds of false teaching. And Jesus says, whoever causes a Christian to fall into sin is in trouble. I mean, this is a scary threat. I mean, you think about this millstone. It's uh, the big kind that has to be driven by a beast of burden. It's either a donkey or an ox. And it had a hole in the middle, and the grain was placed on it, and as the grain was ground, it'd go into the middle and fall out the bottom. And so Jesus said, it'd be better if they took that millstone out and put it around your neck like a necklace and threw you into the sea. And the right question to answer is, better than what? You know, and we'll get to that in a second. But this is a consistent concern in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And not one dot or iota of the law is going to pass away until all has been completed. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is concerned that somebody somewhere is going to lead other people astray. So is Paul. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, to look out for men who are false prophets, deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Peter says it too, 2 Peter chapter 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They'll follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they'll exploit you with false words, but their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." I mean, we need, we're taught to be on our guard about those who would lead us astray, who would teach us that God's commands really aren't that important. We don't have to worry about the way we're supposed to live. That's relaxing one of these least of these commandments. We're to, told to be on guard about people who would fill our minds with all kinds of false things about God and would lead us into error. But we're even told that the decisions we make at individual, as individual Christians 
can impact the faith of those around us. Paul talks about it extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can read that whole passage. I think it may be one of the days of the reading in the followers 5. But Paul's talking about meat sacrificed to idols in Corinth and whether or not it was permissible for people to eat it or not. And Paul said he knew that false gods were just that. They're false gods. There's no such thing as false gods. And so his conscience really wasn't violated when he had eaten meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols. But he recognized that in the church there were some people who had formerly been pagans and had participated in the sacrificial system at the idol temples. And so for them to eat meat sacrificed to idols brought back those memories of when they would eat the feast at the temple. And so Paul said, listen, I know that idols aren't real and that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. But I'm not going to do anything that would cause my brother to stumble. He said, this is a person for whom Christ died. Why would I go bringing their faith down on their heads? You see, there are threats to the church's mission. But they're not always outside the church. They're right here within it. It's when people lead us astray through false teaching or even cause our faith to struggle because of the things they do. I mean, think about how many people, how many self-professing Christians have struggled in their faith because of the moral failings of spiritual leaders. We've seen it in newspapers. Pastors make boneheaded decisions, and people walk away from their faith because of it. And it's a huge problem. It ought to lead us each to ask the question, how does my life and public witness influence and affect other Christians, especially those who are younger and weaker in their faith? And Jesus says it would be better for us that a millstone were put around our neck and we were cast into the sea than that we should do something, either teaching or talking. Maybe we just are throwing out our ideas in a Sunday school class or in a small group. But what's the impact of those words? What's the impact of the public life we live? Do people see us acting a certain way and think that it's okay? How, how does that impact other people? Each of us have to ask this question because, again, the threat is not out there. The threat is right here for those who would lead other Christians into sin. But number two, Jesus said, the second threat is that there are those who take sin lightly. That's what he says in verses 43 to 48. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now think about that. This is, I think, one of Jesus' most vivid warnings about the personal implications of God's judgment for sin. I mean, it's exhaustive. It's not just the hand. It's the hand, foot, and the eye. Uh, it's not just momentary affliction. It is a fire that is unquenchable. I mean, Jesus takes sin seriously, and he warns us that we ought to, too. And the whole warning revolves around two options. You either have the kingdom life of God or you have the eternal fires of hell. 
That's high stakes. And so high stakes, some people have said, well, you know, this is, hyper, this is hyperbolic language. This is metaphor. Surely Jesus doesn't mean for us to cut our hands off and cut our feet off and to pull our eyes out, does he? Well, I, you know, people have done that in the history of the church. And given the alternative, I mean, cutting your hand off may be um, a mercy to yourself. But surely it's just hyperbole. And maybe we shouldn't take the warnings about hell all that seriously anyway. And then maybe your Bible does what mine does, and it says hell, but then it gives me a footnote that says Gehenna. Or maybe your Bible just says Gehenna. And you wonder, well, oh, well, he's not talking about hell at all. He's talking about Gehenna. And Gehenna is a place. Um, it's a valley. It's the Valley of Hinnom. Or in the Old Testament, it's called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And it's infamous in the Old Testament. We learn in Second Chronicles 33 that the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, was the site of pagan child sacrifice carried out by the Israelite king Manasseh, where he burned his children to the pagan god Molech and led Israel astray into the same idolatry. Later, King Josiah desecrated the altar set up to Molech so that no one could ever burn their children alive again to the false god. And he ordered that the valley be made a trash dump where they brought dead animal carcasses and all other kinds of waste and just heaped it up into giant piles. And it was still used for that purpose in Jesus' day. And so you put a bunch of organic material together and sooner or later it heats up enough and it's liable to combust. And so it was just a smoking, smoldering garbage dump. The kind of place that flies love to lay their eggs and larvae love to feed. So when Jesus talks about Gehenna, the image for his first hearers, for the disciples, is really clear. I mean, they know exactly what he's talking about. More than that, Gehenna had come to provide for the Jewish people the stock imagery of God's end-time judgment that he intended to pour out on his enemies. And so from the time of the closing of the Old Testament all the way up to Jesus' day, the rabbis talked about Gehenna as the symbol of the wrath of God which he talks about in Isaiah 66, and which Jesus quotes from in verse 48. And so Jesus is giving them just about as stark of a warning as he could. You better be careful about taking your sin lightly, because you're liable to find yourself suffering the eternal punishment that God's prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what he calls Gehenna in Matthew 25, 41. Now, I know hell is not a topic most people like to talk about today. This is probably the first time you've heard a hellfire and brimstone sermon in a long time. But Jesus had no issues talking about it. He had no issues addressing his disciples and warning them with as much gravity as he could about the risk they were taking when they took their sin lightly. According to Jesus, those who refuse to adopt a radical approach to sin, those who refuse to eradicate it from their lives, are bound for eternal destruction in hell. Now, I want you to think about that. You, you may think that's a little harsh. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about hell, but let me remind you what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that God created us to live in perfect fellowship with him. But the first people rebelled against God's authority, and the Bible calls that rebellion sin. Sin is any 
lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is failing to do what God commands. Failing to do what God commands. And doing what God forbids. You may think, okay, well, what kind of stuff are we talking about here? Well, of course, we're talking about murder. You know, God says, thou shalt not murder. So when you murder, you break the commands of God and you sin. But there are honestly lots of sins, lots of big ones, lots of relatively small ones, things like lying and disobeying your parents, things like harboring a grudge or letting that anger smolder inside of you like the fires of Gehenna. Talk about acting arrogantly and pridefully, selfishly, not concerned about the needs of those around you. I mean, I mean you think about it, and it's not hard to understand why the Bible can say with just an all-out honesty, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's nobody who has an excuse to stand before God and say, well, I never knew, or I didn't know, or I never sinned. No, John says in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. If we say we've never sinned, the truth isn't in us. So every last person who's ever lived has followed those first people into sin. And someday, every last person will stand before God and they'll give an account for every idle word they've spoken, for everything they've done, and for every thought they've thought inside their head. And Jesus says, if you don't take a radical approach to that sin, you can rest assured. You'll spend an eternity in hell where the fire isn't quenched and the worm never dies. But then there's a little hope. Because he says it's going to be costly. You're going to lose a hand in the deal. You're going to lose a foot or an eye. But life is possible. In fact, Jesus says it like this. He says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, repent. I mean, giving up a life of sin is costly, but it's worth it. It means dying to yourself and your desires, even desires that seem so basic to who you are. They feel like ingrained into the fabric of your being, things that you want so desperately. And yet Jesus says to give them up, to turn your back on them and to change, to commit to living his way. He says it like this in John chapter 3, that God sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. Now the biggest risk facing the church today, is that God's people would fail to hear this word. Thinking that we prayed a prayer when we were six years old, and we're set. Not recognizing that those who take sin lightly are warned by Jesus with the harshest language possible. So we ought to ask, am I taking my sin lightly, or am I fighting against it? Am I taking my sin lightly, or am I fighting against it? Which brings us to the final warning Jesus gives in verse 49. He says, everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt then in yourselves, and be at peace 
with one another. First two internal threats deal with sin. Those who cause other Christians to sin and those who take sin lightly. But this one's a little harder to understand. I mean, salt is another one of these biblical images that's pretty flexible. And there are two basic meanings that Jesus uses in his metaphors that revolve around the, the usage of salt in the first century. One is the idea of preservation. Salt was used to preserve meats, and so perhaps Jesus is thinking about salt in this way. The other use was to purify. In fact, it was used that way in the Old Testament in the sacrifices, that every sacrifice had to be salted as a symbol of its purity. And I think that's the idea here. I mean, even the Greek word pure is fire, and so the idea of purification means to sort of put something through the fire, and that's what Jesus says. Everyone is going to be salted with fire. Now, in our effort to take our sin seriously and fight against it, each one of us is going to undergo a little bit of refining. We sang about it earlier. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Every last Christian is going to go through experiences and circumstances that are going to cause the impurities of your sin to rise to the surface so that God can refine you, so that he can show you exactly the mess that you're dealing with and so that he can set you free from it. And it's uncomfortable. That's why Jesus talks about cutting your hand off or your foot off or your eye off. Sometimes it's painful, but every last one of us will experience it. And in fact, he intends for us individually to experience it and then corporately to have the same effect on the world. That having been purified and refined by Jesus, he expects us to have some kind of positive influence on the people around us. So that when we're out in the world, we are a purifying agent to the people around us. That when we walk into a room, people feel like they need to act differently because we bring Jesus with us. That's the goal. Jesus hopes that the salt will have that effect on the world. But he says, watch out, because if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? It's the same kind of thing he talked about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He said, you're the salt of the world. If the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it just to be thrown out the window and trampled underfoot? So what is it that would make a bunch of Christians unsalty? What would make us lose our purifying impact on the world around us? This is it. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Because of that, I think the third internal threat to the church's kingdom work in the world are those who stoke division in the body. Those who refuse to live at peace with one another. And it makes sense in the context. We come full circle. The discussion in the house in Capernaum began with Jesus saying, what were you guys talking about on the road? And it was this competition they had among themselves about who was the greatest. And then John proudly comes up and says, hey, we tried to get the guy that you didn't authorize to use your name, using your name. We tried to get him to stop. They're in competition with the people around them. It's almost like Jesus says, hey, guys, if you don't be careful, this competitive streak, this division that you're stoking among yourselves and with those in the world is going to prevent you from having the impact that you could. I think this is what Jesus is after. That those who stoke division do great danger in the church because they threat the kingdom work God has called us to do. And so we might ask ourselves the same question. 
has the church today become so ineffective in sharing the gospel because we are divided? Has our division undercut the work of the gospel in the world? We say that the gospel unites all people, and we live differently than that. We, we live divided. And so the question stands, could it be that the church has become so ineffective because we're so divided? I'll tell you a story if you'll listen close. In 1265, Kublai Khan was the emperor of Mongolia, and his kingdom stretched from Asia all the way in the Black Sea in Europe. And a guy showed up in his court from the West. His name was Marco Polo. And he came to establish trading routes between Europe and Asia. And he also told the Khan about Jesus. The Khan gave him an audience in his court, and he was very intrigued by the gospel. And so Kublai Khan asked Marco Polo to return back to headquarters in Rome and ask for a hundred of the church's best scholars to come teach the court about Christianity. So Marco Polo goes back to Rome and asks for a hundred of the church's best scholars to come to Rome, to, to come from Rome to teach Kublai Khan's court about Christianity. And I don't know how well your 13th century history is. Mine's not too good, but it's pretty much like all the rest of the Middle Ages. Lots of internal struggle and strife. And you know that the church was so consumed by petty internal divisions that it was 28 years before one person made it from Rome to Kublai Khan's court. One person, 28 years. He'd ask for 100, 28 years later, he gets one. Now, if you were the most powerful warlord in the history of the Middle Ages, how do you think that sits with you? Yeah, if I'm the guy being sent from Rome, I kiss my wife goodbye. Well, I probably didn't have a wife. I'm a celibate monk or something. But I uh, kiss my family goodbye, say, hey, see y'all later. I'm done for, you know. No, but Kublai Khan, I guess, was a reasonable man, and instead he sent a message back. He said, it's too late. I've grown old in my idolatry. Think about that. Send me a hundred of your best men, but so much internal strife and division. 28 years later, one person, Kublai Khan, says, nope, too late. I've grown old in my idolatry. So I don't know if the stakes are as high as that. Maybe they're higher. But when we're divided, either as a church body or as the church in a specific place, when we don't provide a united front on the essentials that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we don't, when we don't get down to the basics of what we believe about Jesus Christ, we risk losing an incredible opportunity that the world is right in front of us. And our world is more divided than ever. Don't you think they're ready to hear a message of unity and peace, of hope? And so we each ought to ask ourselves the question, am I stoking division or am I pursuing peace? There's lots to be distracted about. Lots going on in the world. I told you, I think Satan would like nothing more than us to be consumed with all the reasons out there why we're ineffective in our mission, why we can't find an open door for the gospel. And I think God would just say to us today that the biggest threat to our kingdom work is not out there, but it's right here. 
And so this morning, as the band comes and prepares to lead us in one final song, why don't we just take a moment to sit in God's presence and ask ourselves these questions again? Right? I didn't get them all up on the screen for you at once, but maybe I can read them back to you and you can think about it quietly on your own heart. Will you bow your head with me? Maybe ask God to reveal to you the answer of this question. How does my life impact other Christians around me, especially those who are younger and weaker in the faith? How does your life affect the people around you, especially those who are younger and weaker in the faith? Are you building them up? Are you causing them to stumble? I wonder, are you taking sin lightly? Or are you fighting against it? Maybe personalize it. Am I taking sin lightly? Or am I fighting against it? Maybe today's the day you're honest with yourself and God that you are caught up in the chains of sin. And you need Him to set you free. He's told you how to do it. He said to repent and believe the gospel. This morning, if you'd like to do that, I'd love to talk with you about it after our service. The final question, am I stoking division or am I pursuing peace? Am I stoking division or pursuing peace? Maybe the best way to respond to this message for you is to pick up the phone this afternoon and bury the hatchet with somebody to walk down the street and knock on their door to be at peace with one another father in heaven